0: I'm going my
1: today's sermon is Two Cases When Parenting Becomes Damage Control, and then uh, subtitled And Yet Here We Are. Okay, Um, The truth is that moms and dads who raise children, uh, first of all, take a huge risk. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, Um, but there's often a debate that goes on, especially in young families, about whether or not to bring children into the world. The truth is the world is a dangerous place. Uh, there, once you start that roller coaster ride of raising children, it can be really scary, and you never quite know what's going to happen. You could have a child that's born with a birth defect. You could have a child that uh, gets a disease a month or a year or five years into their life. Um, you could wind up with uh, caring for an autistic child or a child that can't walk or a child that uh, has struggles in understanding you when you talk to them. All of those things race through the minds of parents when they're contemplating having children. And then, unfortunately, some of those exact circumstances which I described and many others may come to fruition once you begin parenting. Um, there are two cases in particular particular in this passage of scripture that we're going to read where the Bible talks about doing damage control and none of those cases I just listed are actually included. The truth is that sometimes in life people have diseases, they have ailments, whatever. They are no less valuable as a human being. In fact, um, most parents who are raising children who have hurdles greatly enjoy the presence of their children. They are grateful for it. I've, I've known a number of parents of autistic children, for example, who love their child just the same as any other child, maybe more so in some ways, they get to, and they spend time with them, and they, they see a developing personality, and they are affected as a person, and it's an awesome experience. And so the things that scare us most when we're contemplating having children, those are not the things. As much as we might think that they are, they are not the things that uh, might... Press us most, okay? So grab your Bibles if you would, maybe give me a who to holler amen, as we're going to go again today to Deuteronomy chapter 21, amen, this is God's word. So we're going to read one through nine again, it's the text that we read and looked at and preached out of last Sunday, and we're going to read it briefly, I'm not going to break it down for you again, so if you weren't here last Sunday, I apologize if there's anything in there, if there is, you can catch me later if there's anything you need to ask about or anything like that, but we're going to... Um, read it again Uh, and actually uh, we're going to begin in one. We're actually going to read all the way through 21. So we'll read the 21 through 9. We did the week before last 10 through 14. We did last week and we're starting today in 15. Okay. If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess it, And it is not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain. And it shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd which has not been worked and which is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water which has not been plowed or sown and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests and the sons of Levi shall come near for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. And all the elders of that city which is nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed his, this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of the, thy people Israel. And the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. Then you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so before I go any further, just remember that out of that, we realize that there there is a blood guiltiness that can come on a person that is not their fault. It's not a thing that they did. Okay, just being in proximity could bring that blood guiltiness on them. And they they were showing that they did not kill the man. They did not know anything about who killed the man. But they were cleansing themselves and the rest of Israel, essentially, as representatives of the blood guiltiness that could come on them, even though they are not the ones who did it. Okay? Now, verse 10 says, this is from last week, when you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. And out of that last week, we talked about, this is the sermon where it says, um, hold, hold gently, let go, right? We talked about how you can add things to yourself. We are victors, so we take captive things. That's what we do. And we can add that to yourself, and then you may figure out that it's not really meant for you, and you have to let it go. We talked about that last week. So in looking at these two texts, before we read the next one, I want you to understand that these two texts propose damage control. Do you follow that? Larry, you served on a ship in the Navy. Did did your ship have damage control teams? Was your ship ever damaged? Why do have damage control teams?
0: To
1: prevent damage. Yeah, to, to stop the damage from happening, okay? And also, if the damage did happen, to have somebody right away to respond to it, right? Okay, so these two texts are largely about damage control, and the next one we're looking at is also about damage control, and it will show us how, in certain cases, parenting is largely damage control. In fact... If either one of those two previous cases were the case, you would need the damage control that was previously described, and now we're going to see how we might need it in two specific cases. It says in 15, If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. Okay, so let's be real clear what we have going on here. We have a man who has two wives. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Don't, don't get wrapped up in it too much right now. But bottom line, we get a situation, a man has two wives. And he favors one wife over the other. I love her, I, my heart yearns for her, she's the one I want. This is my wife also by legal standards, but I don't love her the way I love this wife. But this wife who is my wife by legal standards, whom I don't love as much as I love this wife, gave me my firstborn son. And so by all rights, he would be my heir. But I don't love her the way I love her so I choose this son over here was born say two years later it might have been six months later even right because it's a different woman I choose to make him my firstborn son even though he is technically my firstborn son because I love this wife and by the way when you love your wife and the men in this room can attest this that are married when you love your wife whatever your wife might request you tend to want to give it to her. It doesn't matter what it is, even if it's completely unreasonable. You might go, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And yet there is a part of you that might go, no, I want to do that, right? Um, so, if your loved wife has a son who is your second born son or even third or whatever, and she wants her son to be the first born to inherit, you might want to give it to her because you love her, Right? Okay, so that's the situation that we have. Then we're going to go just a little bit further in the text. Verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him. That means take hold of him. And the word there is like take hold of him by the arm. And they'll bring him out to the elders. And the word there is to compel him to come in front of the elders at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this city shall stone him to death. Okay. Real quick, I want you to see a couple things there. First of all, we're not dealing with a child, are we? Okay. A child, an eight-year-old, for example, would not be called... uh, he would not be called a glutton, or he would not be called a drunkard. He would not be called uh, stubborn and rebellious beyond hope. Right? So we know we're dealing with someone that is old enough to be considered responsible for their actions, right? but not old enough to be out from underneath their parents' control. So you decide in our society what that means. For the teenagers in the room, that probably hurts a little bit, because now what we're talking about is somebody... Aaron, could you do me a favor? Could you grab that remote and adjust that? Yeah. Thank you. Um, anyway, so if you're a teenager in the room or when your child is a teenager, you realize that it starts to get I'm going to give a quick parenting 101 and you guys already know everything I'm about to say, so it's okay, but I'm going to do it for the teenagers in the room and the young people who are not parents yet. When a teenager becomes a teenager, parenting shifts shape. Okay. When you deal with an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old, you tell them what to do and they do it. That's it. Right? And if they don't do it, then there's a whooping, there's a ground, and there's a whatever. Right? And when you get into the teenager realm, it's different, isn't it? All right? Now you tell them what to do, and if they hesitate, you have a problem. Because maybe your boy or your girl is a little old to be getting a whooping. What are you going to do? Right? So you shift modes, and you say, okay, I'm asking, will you do this? Will you take out the garbage, please? And they say, yeah, I'll do it. And then they don't do it. Now there's ramifications, right? Because they made a commitment and they didn't keep it. Or you ask them, "We take out the garbage, please? And they say, no, I don't want to take out the garbage. And you say, okay, now I'm telling you, take out the garbage. So there's a difference because, number one, they're learning to make decisions now. So they have to learn to make a decision with the different impetus that they're given. So they have to decide to do the right thing. It's not good enough anymore to just always be told to do the right thing because soon they're going to be an adult and they're going to have to decide to do the right thing on their own when you're not there to tell them, right? So you're teaching them now to make the right decisions. So you ask first and they say yes and they don't do it. Now there's ramifications or they say no. Then you shift mode. So, okay, take the garbage. Out. I, I asked you nicely. Now I'm telling you, take it out, right? And then they still don't. Now there's ramifications, but they, the ramifications are not going to be the same thing with a teenager that they would be with a child because again, they're getting a little too old to have their butt whipped, Right? A little too old to have certain things done. So now it's, we take the garbage out? No. Okay, now I'm telling you to take the garbage out. Okay, still don't take the garbage out. So you take the garbage out. Then later they come and they say, can I use the car? It's like, no. Well, why not? Because I asked you to take the garbage out and you wouldn't do it. If I ask you to do something, you don't do it? Then I'm not going to do whatever. Can I play video games? No. I took your video game out of your, out of your room. What? You took my video games. Why would you do that? Because I asked you to take the garbage out and... You're busy playing your video games, so you're not responsible enough to do what I asked you to do. You're not responsible enough to have the video games. So it changes shape, okay? Teenagers are held accountable for what they do. They have to be, because soon they're going to be an adult. So that's what we're talking about here, what it was like for them in the exact age is probably a little older. They didn't really become considered adult males and could stand on their own until they were almost 30, right? And unfortunately, it's getting to be kind of like that in the United States of America now with some, in some places. But the bottom line is, if you have an adult, child or a young adult child who's becoming responsible and you can say of them, look, they're rebellious and stubborn. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now, notice it only says he here, but this probably did apply to females as well. It says, you take him to the city gate, to the elders of the city, and you present the case. And then it says, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear of it and fear. And we'll stop there with the text for the day. So if we're talking about damage control, first thing I want you to see in here is, uh, and yet here we are. Listen, you may love your child and do everything you possibly can to do to raise your child. You may do the best for them you possibly can and it just may not work, turn out exactly the way you would have liked. Okay. And you may have a marriage. You may even have, I guarantee you, remember, if they followed the, what God had advised them to do about taking a wife from a prisoner, right? So you got a wife, and then you go out and you conquer a city, and you find another woman that you like to make your wife. And so you make her your wife, and you follow all the necessary steps. You should not arrive, should not have arrived in a place where you had two wives, one loved and one unloved. But, but here you are, so what are you going to do about it? right? Now, before I go any further, I think I would be remiss to ask you, do you know what God's design for marriage is? I think most of the married people in this room do, right? How many wives do you get? One, One right? Jesus says uh, in Mark chapter 10, he said it this way, Mark chapter 10 at the beginning, it says, uh, and rising up, he went from, there, uh, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again, and according to to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Catch what he asks exactly. What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That would be the third part of what we talked about last week, the let her go, right? But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. That comes out of Genesis, right? Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So I'm going to myself when I read that text. What did God, through Moses, command them to do? All right. Well, you are thinking about the sermon last week. I'm thinking about the sermon last week. Right. We have this process. You go out to a war. You conquer a people. Not in Canaan or not in the promised land. You go out to war. You conquer a people. You see a woman there. I think I'd like to take her as a wife. But you already got a wife at home. Right? So they... This woman, now she's going to be a slave or a servant anyway. She's a captive. She's not going to be free. That's not an option. Her people have been conquered, right? So you take her and you go, oh, I'm going to make her my wife. So you take her home and you put her through this long process of sort of like separating her from her history, her parents, everything that was going on, humbling her, giving her the opportunity to become an Israelite, giving her the opportunity to become one of your people. And then you marry her. Now you've got two wives. Okay. So the question is, did God command them? Well, if you look at the language of what we read, it says, if a man has two wives, that's 15. In 10, it says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself. So where there is a command? Wherein there is a command from God that this is a process that you can do. There isn't one. God does not say, go out in battle, and when you see a woman there, desire her that you can take her as a wife. God doesn't command them to desire her. God doesn't command them to take them as wives. Right? In fact, they own them. They're captives. Among the captives. You see a beautiful woman have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then God starts the damage control. He says, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove all of that. It's all damage control. Why? Because they have a desire that they're going to act on anyway. So God is saying there is a time at which it's just damage control. I'm not telling you this because I'm telling you it's okay to go take a second wife. I'm telling you this because you're going to take a second wife. And when you do, do you remember the story in the Bible of God, through Samuel, talking to the Israelites about taking a king. And what does Samuel say? Well, you take a king, these are the bad things that's going to happen. right? But he was told, don't take a king. But then when you take a king, these are the bad things that are going to happen. And this is what you're going to have to do. right? The bottom line is, we're human beings. We're complex. And we're going to do, sometimes we're going to do, what we want to do. Ironically, I was listening to a sermon on the podcast this week. Um, and I do that quite frequently. If you, if you have time and want to do that, you can. There's 152 uh, services on our podcast that go back, all the way back to 2017 now. And there, there will be more once I get them caught up. We're still catching up the ones that were lost when we lost our previous podcast provider. I was listening to that sermon and I heard myself say these words. So there's a wise man in my life who once told me that his dad told him, repeatedly when he was growing up, that people are basically going to do what they want to do. Now the truth is, God says the same thing. God says, you're going to go out to war. You're going to capture all these women. Among them are going to be some beautiful women. You're going to go, like, I think I would like to make her my wife. And if when you arrive at that case and you're going to do that, here's what you have to do to practice damage control to stop this from being a real problem. Okay? And he's saying, it's complicated. There's steps you've got to take. And then now we get it, now you're there, you've got two wives, so that's going to be complicated because you're going to have one that you love and one that you don't, and the one that you don't might be the one that gave you your firstborn son, and you cannot perpetrate an injustice against your firstborn son just because you chose to have two wives. What's the standard? The standard is one wife. One wife. And Jesus said from the beginning the standard was always one wife. When is that announced? In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. The standard is one wife. We're not talking about polygamy. God is not authorizing you to have more than one wife. And I submit to you that God is not authorizing you at any point in time in your life to have any split loyalty. Split loyalties result in a lack of integrity. Because you're going, at one moment in time, it's important to me that I have enough money. At another moment in time, it's important to me that I have consumer electronics. Which way do I want to go? It's important to me that I tithe and honor God and put Him first in my finances. But it's also important to me that I get to go out on my birthday and celebrate. You're always going to have split loyalties. And if you have split loyalties, you're always going to be doing damage control. I submit to you that it is God's desire for us that we move from the realm of damage control to, as Larry so wisely just taught us without even realizing it, to the realm of damage prevention. And that's what God desired. In fact, as he's telling us what damage control will look like, I submit to you that the whole time God is hoping that they'll not be so stupid as to go out and take second wives or more than second wives. But the truth is when you're conquering tens of thousands of of women and children in these lands outside the mainland and you're taking them into your possession among them you're going to find beautiful women and you're going to have to find out whether or not you're going to give in to the desire to take them and if you don't want to dishonorably take them and you don't want to have rape or whatever going on then you're going to go well I, I, I at least need to make this look good I have the right to take her home as a wife because there ain't no man to defend her. Nobody's going to take care of her. And she wants it because she doesn't have property. She doesn't have a job, can't have a job, can't have income. She wants it too. So her and I are going to have an agreement. We're going to call that a marriage. Even though I already got four wives at home, I'm now going to have a fifth wife or whatever. And so they were going to do that. And God recognized they were going to do that out of their ignorance, maybe, but really out of their desire. So notice then the need for damage control can be foretold as a deterrent. He's telling us, look, this is going to be complicated. You're going to do this to yourself. This is going to get hard. And you're going to have to make hard decisions. You're going to have to somehow still find a way to do what's right, even though you've compromised your course all the way along the way. And yet, here we are. The second thing I want you to see in there. Uh, is when a child grows to be wrong, as an adult, as a teenager, or whatever, when they grow to that point in their life where they can be considered culpable for their actions, certainty, then, is judgment. It shouldn't be, and yet here we are. If you realize that you have a 14, 15, 18, whatever, 20-year-old that's living in your house. And they're living in a way that is ungodly. They're living in a way that is not right. And I can say that I experienced this firsthand. And I didn't know what I'm teaching today when it happened to me. But it happened to me. You're going to have to make a difficult decision. Now, we don't have a modern... Perfect equivalent to stoning right you can't take your 15 year old out and stone them because they're rebellious um, because they're malthy because they're even a drunkard or whatever you can't you can't do that, but realize that is a place in which damage control then is really becoming necessary in our case we had a young person in our household who decided to kind of go their own way to the point that they looked me in the face and said, I don't even know if I believe in God. And they were leaving. And the, the logic was this. Sherry and I talked about it, prayed about it, thought about it, looked at it biblically the best we knew how, which we didn't understand what I'm studying today. But we understood that we had to make a decision. And we said, look, we have another child. Two more, actually we had two more three more kids in the house, but we have another child that already understands what's going on. We have to make these decisions. We can't allow you to continue to live this way and live in our house because of the effect it's going to have on our house. So there's a moment in time at which your child is making a decision that you cannot biblically, godly, approve of, and in so doing, you have to practice damage control. Remember the whole breaking the neck of the heifer out in a field? the blood guiltiness can come on you even though you didn't do it. They're old enough that they have to make a decision. They have to decide where they stand with God, what they're going to do, and yet, you can still be found guilty. Right? So they're at that age at which damage control has to be done to ensure that that blood guiltiness does not wash over onto you or the rest of your household or your family or whatever. Granted, This damage control that's going to be necessary if you have a child that grows up wrong, essentially, that falls on the wrong side of justice, the wrong side of judgment, the wrong side of grace, the wrong side of what's biblical. If that happens, there's going to be damage control control that has to be done. And so predicting that damage control becomes a deterrent. How so? Well, let's go a little further. There is no Christian or kingdom God, modern day equivalent to stoning. But the Bible does prescribe certain actions when that situation is imminent. The first thing you have to do is you have to let it be known for whom you stand. The next breath you draw, why do you draw it? You have to get to the point where everything that is about you and everything that you generate is about God and His kingdom first. Going into the promised land, Joshua looked at the Israelites and said, in fact, we had a devotional on this yesterday at breakfast. Um, he said, if you want to follow these other gods, go ahead and do that. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And a similar situation you need to be saying that not by the time you get to here comes damage control. Okay, we've got this young man or this young woman who's doing all of these things and it's, they're going the wrong direction. They're not living in a godly way and I can't have them in my house. So hey, you do what you want to do. You go be you. Go do your thing. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. No. <laughs> That's too late. In most of the cases that my children were born, I quoted them that verse Before they could understand language. Those children coming into your house have to know from the beginning. It's a deterrent. Listen. My damage control teams are already in place. They're already there. And if you should choose to become the fire that will burn up my house. You need to understand. You will be put out. You say from the beginning. Let it be known. God first in all things in our house. And you have every opportunity then, pieces are all still on the board, it could work out. You have every opportunity then that maybe they won't fall down. They won't fall on the wrong side of the fence. The upcoming child should be warned of the potential for the need to do damage control. When you have a child that's between the ages of about four and about ten... And I, and I think a lot of times the age actually ends at about seven because it's it's when they understand it. if they're being raised in a Christian household. A lot of times they understand a lot sooner. They should be understanding. If you're spanking that child, they should know why. That you're not spanking them because you're mad at them. You're not spanking them because they deserve it. Right, but the whole the spanking. The discipline, the grounding, the scolding, all of it is a form of damage control. Listen, I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to stop the damaging effects of the choice that you just made. We're trying to put an end to this. We're trying to live godly. You say, as for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord. What you just did, that's not following the Lord. So let us be warned. There will always be the potential for damage control. Third... You should be expressing the sentiment all the time that we here, my family, myself, we love God and the kingdom of God, and we love it and Him enough to take things from the captives that confuse the issue. In other words, you run into something, you're in charge of it, (laughs) right? You, You get to decide, you're free in Christ, I know whom I follow, I know in in whom I have trusted, and he's able to keep unto that day that which I have entrusted to him. I've entrusted to me. I entrusted to my best understanding. I trust it to Jesus. Then I run into the difficulty, whatever that is, I take that captive. I'm in charge in Christ. I will deal with this situation the way God would have me to deal with it the best I know how. Are you going to make mistakes? Sure. You don't become lost because you made a mistake. You become lost if, if you're lost because you didn't follow Jesus or the way that Jesus set out for you. If you're following Jesus, then when you get in that situation, you take that situation captive and you go, I see this is going to be a problem. This is not going to be in my house. Listen, that beautiful woman that they were choosing to make their wife, she, I look at her, she's beautiful, right? They could have sold her for not a small amount of money because she's a beautiful woman. They owned her, right? But now we're not talking about people anymore, are we? Talking about situations, circumstances, things, just like we talked about last week, and we went through the process. But the bottom line is, your child, your children, your young adult—they should know that when they run into something, they got to be in charge. I started saying to my kids that Ariana was an example. She went to a birthday party this last late, late in the summer, last summer, and there were a bunch of girls there from her basketball team. And I said, if you get there and there's something going on that's ungodly, you call immediately. You authorize your child to take control of that situation because your child in Christ is more than a conqueror. Your child in Christ is in charge when it... If you're in the room and Jesus is in you, then every evil spirit in the room is subject to you. If you're playing footsie with evil spirits, it's, it's you desiring to take the risk of having to do damage control. But if you would... Let your child know from the get-go that they have the right to take captive any issue that comes up. Then later, when they get in high school, when they get into late junior high or whatever, and they are culpable for their own decisions, and they're moving in the wrong direction. They can go, wait a minute, why am I doing this? I'm giving up my birthright. I'm giving up my power in Christ. I'm giving up my power that my God, my my God, through my dad, through my mom, bestowed to me, and and I'm becoming something that I don't want to be. But you know, it still happens. You may raise them in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they may not depart from it. But somewhere in the middle, they may. You know? And so the Bible talks about damage control. There's Matthew 18 damage control. Matthew 18, 15 through 18 is basically where it says, if they start to sin, you talk to them about it. And then they, they still won't repent or recant what they're doing. And so you bring one or two other people in. And then still won't. And then you bring them before the church. And your teenager gets kicked out of the church and they're no longer part of the church because they refuse to repent of what they were doing that the church agrees is a problem. And by the way, when that happens, what do you do? It says that you would teach them as a, or you would treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. What do we do with Gentiles or tax collectors? Well, we love them, but we don't give them internal access. Right? You don't let somebody that's a complete stranger come live in your house. You don't let somebody, and you may not be able to kick your teenager out. I'm not saying that you should do that, but you cannot give them access. Now, you're living in my house. I'm still providing for you, but you don't get to be part of the decision-making process now. You're arguing with your brother? You shut your mouth, right? Because you don't have the rights here now because you've chosen to live a certain way that does not line up with what God says, and it's for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. So there is a damage control built in. Warned of that damage control, perhaps they choose not to go that way. But if they do choose, and they might choose to go that way, then there are steps for damage control built in. It goes a little further in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. to Uh, There's a passage of scripture where it says, I have heard it said amongst you that there is a man who has his father's wife. Right? And it goes on basically to explain that everyone knew that this guy sleeping with his father's wife is probably his stepmom, not his mom. Let's hope. Oh my goodness. Right? Sleeping with the stepmom. And everybody's like, it's fine. But it ain't fine. That's not fine. That's time for damage control. So what does Paul say that we do when we get to that point, we need that kind of damage control? He uses these exact three words. He says, expel, I'm sorry, it's four words, expel the immoral brother. You kick them out of the church. They don't belong. So I get it, I understand. We're all going, man, these are harsh treatments. These are difficult things to do, right? Somebody's going to get upset. Somebody, it's like you're tearing out the tears and the roots of the wheat are being ripped up in the same process. You're going to say, we've got to move this person out of the church because they're involved in sinful behavior and they won't repent. And you're like, man, the other people that love them are going to be so hurt. They're going to be so upset because their brother, their mother, their friend, their son, whatever, got kicked out of the church because they were doing what was wrong. Mind you, it's after process determining, but if it's publicly done out there, does that, is there any process? Did he say, hey, that man's sleeping with his father's wife and everybody knows it, and you're not doing anything about it. So let's start Matthew 18, accountability. No, that's not what it said. It said, expel the immoral brother. Kick him out. That's it. Done. So you have somebody come in here. I, we, back on Main Street, I had a woman come in and before a service. And she sat there, and I was trying to counsel with her, and she was upset and disgruntled with the church. And as I'm trying to counsel with her, and she's upset and disgruntled with the church, she was bad-mouthing some of the people in this room. And some of what she was saying was clearly and obviously lies about the people who were in the church. And I said, listen, you've got to stop. You have to stop now. So, number one, I wasn't there. So that would make it gossip. Number two, what you're saying is a lie. I know because I know some of the people that were there and I know they would not lie to me. And so I received a report of what went on. I know what you're saying is not what went on. You've got to stop. And she wouldn't stop. And we're 20 minutes before service. and She's continuing to slander and to lie. And finally, I said, okay, listen, I'm done. At this point in time, I'm here to tell you, your, your membership in the church is revoked. You're done. You're no longer a member of the church. You're not going to sit here and lie and slander and spit and venom and every third word's a cuss word 20 minutes before we're supposed to worship God. We're not going to do it. So you're done. And I removed you from the church. And at the next membership meeting, I told the church what I did because at that point in time it becomes this person has fallen on the wrong side of the line. We love God, we love kingdom of God, we do kingdom things. Don't teach your children to ever, don't ever 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 in this lifetime teach your child not to do every possible kingdom thing because anytime you teach them not to do a kingdom thing, you're setting them up for a need for damage control later. Do you believe in the word of God? Do you believe that God's word does not come back void as it says? Do you believe that if they know more word of God, they will have a better chance of being equipped to face problems in the future? Then you make sure that every opportunity they have access to the word of God. So you don't miss worship. You don't miss Bible study. You don't miss study in the word. You don't miss memorization. You don't miss meditation. You don't miss family devotions. You don't, miss, you don't watch 42 episodes of anything else before watching a minimum of one episode of something that is expressly Christian teaching about Jesus. But that's what we're doing. So damage control is presented as a possible need down the road. You may need to practice Matthew 18 accountability or even expel them as an immoral brother from the fellowship. You're warned about that. We're warned about that. And yet, we are walking this road kind of... Listen, if you're one foot in the kingdom of God, when they grow up, they will be two feet out. I will guarantee it without a shadow of a doubt. This much I know, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're walking with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot out, they're going to have to make a choice between the two. And the choice from you, you're saying, put both your feet in the kingdom of God, really serve the Lord, really be, facing, really be forward with God, Right, going everywhere he goes, doing everything he does. Right. But they see you, and you're telling them that's the right thing to do, but you're a hypocrite because you have one foot in and one foot out, but you're telling them to have both feet in. So they're going to ignore what you say. And then there's thousands, tens of thousands, possibly millions of other voices that are all going to say, it's much better over here. Just put both your feet over here. So they're going to ignore the one voice that's saying the right thing but doing the wrong thing and listen to the other voices that are both saying and doing the wrong thing. That's what's going to happen. All of this is about doing damage control. All of this entire, all of these texts are about doing damage control that would essentially be completely unnecessary If the people of God, delivered by the grace of God, would live by the grace of God and deliver both judgment or justice and salt. Two left. The next one is withdrawing support. This one hurts. This one hurts. Because this is your loved one. right? We're talking about your teenager. Your child. You changed their diapers. He sat up with them when they had a fever. And now, they're not living for the Lord. They're on the outs. And even if you say to them, look, I, I cannot, I can't embrace what you're trying to do here. I have to let you go, even if that's true, right? Then, they're still going to call for help now and then. They're still going to look for money now and then. They're still going to want you to show up and tell them everything's Okay? Because they're refusing to grow in the Lord, they're still going to need their boo-boos plastered and their egos soothed and so on. And this is a known condition. And then in 2 John, you can read what the Bible's solution is. And I fully understand this is weighty material and I apologize, We're, we're two steps from the conclusion here. 2 John, beginning of verse 7, says this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ, listen to that, let me say it again, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teachings, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, I understand this. We're talking about your teenager that lives in your house already, right? So it's not like you're going to receive them into your house. They already are in your house. So what do you do? Well, you do damage control to avoid participating in their evil deeds. They may turn 18 in America. That means they get to move out, right? Or 17 maybe in some cases. Then they move out and they're not living for the Lord. You don't participate in their evil deeds. As painful as it was for me, we had the conversation when we had this situation develop in our house where we said, well, we just can't go to that house. We can't go there. They call you, oh, no, a hundred bucks. My electricity is going to be shut off. I'm sorry. You're living on the wrong side. Of... I can't continue to throw money down a well with a hole in the bottom. It's just going to go away. I think you should repent and turn to the Lord. You say, that's not right, that's not fair, it's like blackmail. You're telling me that I have to withdraw my love from this person in order to show them how severe the the choices that they have made. Listen, we're talking about damage control. There's a moment at which parenting becomes damage control. Because the alternative is, you're partaking in their evil deeds. You're supporting what they're doing. They'll call you for $100 for an electric bill because they three days before that, they spent their $100 on crack cocaine or alcohol or video game cards or whatever. It doesn't even matter. Yes, they need the $100 to pay their electricity. But the bottom line is, according to what the Word says, if they have walked away from the Lord, if they're outside the kingdom of God, if they're not living by godly principles, you're not to receive them into your house, you're to avoid, in verse 11, even a greeting it says, even him who gives a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, I'm not saying be disrespectful. We'll go back to what Matthew 18 says, where it says treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, right? So you love them, you love them to the Lord. If a perfect stranger comes up to you tomorrow as you're walking down the sidewalk and says, I need $100 to pay my electric bill, if the Lord does not specifically author it, I hope you say no. Because that would be Ridiculous. If God says, yes, do it, then you do it and share the gospel and maybe they'll get saved. Oh, but that's not right. I can't give them $100 for an electric bill and also share Jesus because then it looks like I'm paying them to believe. Nobody's going to believe because you paid them. They might confess to believe. They might pretend to believe, right? They might pretend like they're coming around, but they're not going to believe and be saved because you gave them $100. It doesn't work that way. So if you give them the $100 and don't share the gospel with them, that is disrespectful to God. If we give them groceries when they need groceries and don't share the groceries with them, that is disrespectful to God. It's not about what they do. The groceries are damage control. We're doing damage control. We have hungry people who are hungry. We provide them with food. That's damage control. How do we get to the point where we no longer need to provide damage control? The ship is sinking. So you have two choices let it sink, throw a party, celebrate it. It's finally done. That would be the equivalent of just telling a hungry man, just starve. We're sick and tired of your stuff. We're not going to do that. So you're going to provide damage control. When do you get to stop providing damage control? When the person has integrity, when the person has health, when the person is following God, when the person is doing what it is that they're supposed to do. So we're talking about damage control in the case of somebody who's walked away from the Lord. First of all, we started with, let it be known who you stand for. Let them be warned that the potential necessity of damage control Show them that they can love God and take captive anything that might confuse the issue on which side they stand. And then if they still refuse and are walking away from the Lord, practice Matthew 18 accountability as necessary. But when it becomes an obvious blatant sin, expel the immoral brother. Make a break between them and your intimate self. Put a line here and say, I am walking with God. Clearly you are not. We cannot be together on this matter. Even to the point of withdrawing support, according to 2 John and then most importantly of all, always be ready to forgive and to let them back in if they are respect, if they are expressing repentance, seeking forgiveness. That's why out of this very same teaching, Jesus was, right after the Matthew 18 te- te- teaching, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, so, "Well, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother if he comes back asking for forgiveness?" Even seven times? And Jesus says, I say to you, 77 times seven times. See, we are a people of forgiveness. And if you cannot forgive, you cannot be forgiven. So saith the word of God. But forgiveness when someone has hurt you, forgiveness when someone is in sin, is damage control. Because the reality is God did not want them to be in sin in the first place. And that brings us to our conclusion. Quick recap. Two cases where parenting becomes, intentionally becomes damage control. In the text, it is number one. When a man has gone after his desires and done what he probably shouldn't have done in the first place, not probably, definitely should have done in the first place, and taken two wives... He is still required to make the tough decisions to do what's right even after he has done that. Don't you understand if you're in this room and you develop for yourself, God forbid, but if you develop for yourself a drug addiction or a pornography addiction or you commit adultery or you're lusting after somebody which would be about the same thing or you have a lot of anger towards your brother, same, which is basically murder, whatever, you develop that in your own life and it starts to happen. Even under that situation, even with that true, you are still required to do right by God. (laughs) How's that going to work? You're committing adulterous activities, yet you're required to do right by God. Not going to work out very well. Going to need some damage control. So, what kind of damage control are you going to do? Well, let's just cut God out. It'll be a lot easier then, won't it? Well, (laughs) for temporally maybe. Maybe. For a very short period of time it will be easier, but you're going to answer to God eventually. So what kind of damage control are you going to do? If you're here in the room and you've allowed something to come into your life because you were pursuing pleasure rather than pursuing God, you need to repent of that thing. You need to turn from it. Maybe publicly confess it and say, look, this is what I got into. I am turning from that. I am turning to God alone. And I am walking with both my feet in the kingdom of God. I am going to try to live a life that will make it less likely that I will need damage control. I probably will, because I'm a person, I'm complex, I make mistakes, I'll fall, I'll fail, I'll, make, I'll, I'll stumble. So I probably will. But I want to need the least amount of damage control I possibly can. The second thing is, a young man, another person, a young woman, They're outside your control. The truth is you can do everything that you want to do to set them up to do the best you possibly can. I've seen my wife do heroic, impossible things in the lives of our kids as a mother. I've seen other mothers in this church do heroic, impossible things. Things that human beings cannot do without some kind of miraculous assistance in the lives of their children. And yet, here we are. And yet is an entire possibility. You think that the drug dealer out there in the city didn't have a mother? And she didn't love him? And it might be generational, but somewhere along the lines, there was a woman who wanted them to turn out right. It might be the grandmother. We have people that their grandparents bring their kids to church to follow the Lord. Because Why? Because the moms and the dads are completely outside the kingdom. Want nothing to do with it. And it can happen. But it is a mother's love and a mother's effort and a mother's best chance is that she and hopefully her husband, if he's in the mix, do everything they can to set a standard for their children so that when they grow up, they will hopefully desire the Lord. But no one can do it for anyone else. There are no grandchildren of God. And so you have to be that representative. You have to present it, and hopefully they will receive it. But if you present it with a mixed part, divided, one foot in each kingdom, then if I were you, I think I'd probably start getting ready to do Matthew 18 accountability, maybe to expel the immoral brother and your own child when they grow up, maybe to withdraw support for the course of action that they have taken. Always being ready to forgive, by realizing that forgiveness may be the only avenue you have left at some point. How many mothers have stood over the caskets of their overdosed 20-something-year-old? 85,000 United States adults overdosed on opioids in 2022. 85,000. In all 50 states, nobody was immune. 85,000 people. And they all had mothers. Now, whether their mothers were still alive or not, but they all had mothers. And the moment they were giving birth, they were going, oh, I hope my child doesn't have autism. I hope my child doesn't come out with only one foot. Or I hope my child doesn't come out with brain damage. Or They all had hopes and desires and love for that child. And maybe opioids wasn't even on their radar. And then when the child was 23, 25, 26 years old, they stole their TV to sell for drugs. This is the reality of the world that we live in. People chase after what they desire. And sometimes you got to do damage control. You want a better? If you're a parent in the room and you want the best possible chance, or if somebody you are going to be a parent, that could be all of us, right? You want the best possible chance of not having to do damage control, put both feet in the kingdom of God, Let it be known that God is first for you in all things. Be warned of the potential, be warning them of the potential for damage control. Love God and the kingdom of God enough to take captive things that confuse the issue. That means turn the TV off. Put the phone down. Shut off the video games. And for God's sake, somebody pick up a Bible. Because it's coming. A day when, if not, we as parents or future parents will have to do the kind of damage control that nobody wants to do. In the Navy, when damage control is begun, men, who are, and sometimes women, who are specifically trained for that task race to the site of wherever the problem is. And they do whatever is necessary to take care of the damage. And some of them die in the process. Do you not see that we have a heavenly father? We have a heavenly father who looked down on us and saw children who had gone the wrong way. And we all like sheep have gone astray. And he sent his son. God the son came in the flesh and died to pay the price. So that those children could come back 77 times 7 times. And be forgiven if they were willing. And that's you. And that's me. The question is. Are we now walking with both feet in the kingdom of God. So the next generation has a standard. Has someone to look to. And we can do what needs to be done in our day. And, and I would encourage you to take a young person along with you. There are some men in this room who are not dads. Who I have seen do such an incredible job. Of bringing the young people of our church or just to anywhere. Like they'll go into a crowd at a block party and help the kids find their way. Because they're standing up for Jesus. And you just might be the one. Ricky and Michael during COVID did uh, American Giants football in the side yard. When kids had literally just about nothing else to do. And those kids looked up to them, maybe wrongly, okay. But they looked up to them like God's. But then Michael and Ricky made about God. As men and women and young people, because there's nobody here that's not at least a teenager, which means you're all culpable, it's our job to live in the kingdom of God and to invite the world to join us. And as our memory verses for this week said, we have become ambassadors for Christ. As we come for God, I beg you, I beg you, it says, be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God I did it wrong that we might become that we might become the righteousness of God through him and if they see you and you are exhibiting exhibiting the righteousness of God then you have a shot at not having to do damage control later and a shot is the best you can hope for But if they see you not living for the Lord on a regular basis or hypocritically declaring Jesus while living for yourself or for something the world has to offer, not taking captive things that would cause confusion, I guess I'd get ready to do damage control because it's coming. And I submit to you that the laws of our nation, the policing, all the judges, it's all damage control. It's all damage control damage control that's being done because the parenting child relationship of past generations however it happened failed in the kingdom of God let us say not us we will stand up for God and when all is said and done we will be found to still be standing and I hope our young people will still be standing with us this time I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward lead us in a final hymn, song, and we're going to sing. But if you're here today and you realize that you've been playing games with your faithful following of the Lord, then you repent right now, not while we're singing, just do it right now in the second. So I'm turning to the Lord. I want to be representing God in all ways. If you realize that you could be leading a young person in your life toward needing damage control, then you repent and turn to the Lord if you realize that you are under the effects of damage control now because you didn't then you ask God for forgiveness and you let him forgive you because he wants to and he paid for it and then we'll praise him together hell is the ultimate damage control God doesn't want to send anyone to hell doesn't send anyone he can't but he doesn't it's the ultimate in damage control Because the blood guiltiness of the choices that people make would be on everyone else in heaven. They didn't even do anything wrong. They accepted Jesus and believed. But if one murderer who hadn't believed in Christ were allowed to go to heaven, then heaven would be the home of a murderer. It's not going to be like that. hell is the ultimate damage control. We don't want to see anybody under the effects of that damage control for an eternity. Instead, we want to see people believing in Jesus so believe. Would so you stand with me and let's sing this song together? The Lord is speaking to your heart, and you respond however He's leading you today. Just as I am.